The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence, graphic descriptions, along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On June 9th, 2009, around 1 a.m. in Mooresville, North Carolina, an intruder came into a house and walked into the master bedroom. He then opened fire on a husband, wife, and their one-year-old son. Though the wife sustains a gunshot to the wrist, the husband is killed. Upon investigation, it is found that he has two different caliber bullets in him and he's also been stabbed several times. Though the police name a suspect, he is quickly cleared of the crime. No other suspect has ever been identified and the murder remains a mystery to this day. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Matt Stewart. Investigators are trying to figure out who shot a father of three in his own home and why. Crime Tracker 36 reporter Alex Reed was the first reporter on the scene this morning. He's live with more on what police are doing to dig up clues. Well, right now, state and local investigators are going through every single inch of this house. They're trying to find any sort of evidence that could give them some sort of clue as to who could have done this or why. Right now, neighbors and friends say they are baffled. They can't understand why anyone would target a family that spent their lives serving others, break into their house, and shoot them. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere. In the bowels of Georgia. I was going to uh, cue up the old song, School's Out for Summer, but I got lazy and forgot about it. Oh, you can splice it in. I can. I might do that. My summer break officially started. Yes, yes. I finally, after a week of being off, finally was able to relax and not feel like I was needing to run into my office to check my computer emails and shit like that. So, but anyway, as jealous as I am of you getting a week off already, I still get the entire month of August off. So I was going to say, weird. it's a hell of a trade. I'll take the, I'll take your month and give you my week. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a little bit of kerfuffle when it came to this past week's episode. We just could not get it dialed in with each other's what do you call it calendars schedules yeah. whatever you want to call it but anyway We're busy um, men. even though you had a week off sitting on your lazy cookus well that's the thing i had a week off but school my son's school was still in my nephew graduated uh, one of my other best friend's son graduated i had like three graduations i went to and then Throw in Memorial Day weekend, and then you're still having to do planning days. We just couldn't get it dialed in. So everyone seemed okay with it. And if you're not, it's our fucking podcast, so who cares? Um, yeah, we'll take two weeks off next time. <laughs> complain. We'll get one complaint two weeks next time. You hear me? So hear me? we did have – I don't think we gave the shout-out 
please keep Miss Leah Filberto in your thoughts and prayers. She's going through a little situation. She's had to pause her Patreon account, which is understandable. But not mad about it. No, she uh, was very forthcoming because I always, when something happens on Patreon and we have people leave, I always message them hoping that they will respond. And she did. And um, I'm not going to disclose what she had stated. But, you know, she just needs a little basement love thrown her way if you are the praying type. Keep her in your prayers. Uh, we did have a new patron, I do believe, before we took our break. I don't think we shouted them out. And that was Charlie Deschartes and Mr. Paul Fuscus Third. He is the one working on our conversion files. And I've got to get off my lazy ass and upload them sons of bitches to YouTube. We did have some comments on our dumb cryptids. <laughs> People took that a lot better than I thought they would. And it actually did okay on uh, the downloads aspect of it i mean it's right there with everything else i mean you know so thank y'all for indulging us after some heavy hitters we needed to laugh it up and stuff like that but the comment section and not everybody on patreon comments but april fowler says that veggie man makes me think of stephen king's character in the old creep show and now i've never seen a creep show maybe i should natalie walker said I say zero pythons run away. Slither away would be more likely. And exactly. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. <laughs> and then our super fan who is quick to point out anything we screw up. I sent Coach a screenshot of this when it when we first received it, but uh, the artist known as Morgan Anonymous. Said, y'all think you're real funny, don't you? You think that dick cryptid is a joke. Let's see how you feel when you're getting beat around the head and neck with a raging purple seven-foot cryptic. Won't be too funny then. You just wait no, and see. It would not. <laughs> any Me getting beat about the head and neck by any dick would not be funny. <laughs> Do you have any other things to add, sir? No, man. I'm just tired. And too. I feel like I have uh, run a marathon and I'm not. I do do say uh, do not take installing a bathroom exhaust fan for granted. That was three hours of my life that I'll never get back. Yeah, well, my insomnia is back with a vengeance. That's not good. Well, you know, I haven't seen the shadow people in a while, so if I don't sleep tonight, I'll be seeing them tomorrow afternoon on my first day off. Always a good time to kick it into gear. Yeah. All right. Well, tonight we are dealing with the case from one Mooresville, North Carolina, and that is the case of Matt Stewart. Matthew Ryan Stewart was born on March 14th, 1978, and was the son of H. Michael and Bonnie Stewart both of Mooresville, North Carolina. Matt had an older sister named Mandy. Now, Mooresville is a suburb suburb is a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, which is approximately 20 miles north on the northern side of Lake Norman. It's a growing town that still preserves a lot of small town charm, and Matt would graduate from Mooresville Senior High School in 1996. While in high school, he excelled at both basketball and soccer. 
He would graduate from Mitchell Community College with an associate degree in nursing. And it is reported that during his post-high school and early college careers, he did have a little battle with addiction, but had kicked that habit and got his life on track. Friends and family said that Matt would always be outdoors playing pickup basketball games with his friends when he was in college or after he had a family of his own, he would have pickup games in the neighborhood with the neighborhood kids. So he was always outside doing something. Now, sometime in the early 2000s, Matt would fall for a young woman from the church he was attending. She was a single mother named Angela Hare, who went by Angel. Yes, Angel Hare. Oh, that's nice. She had just recently given birth to her daughter, Hannah, when Matt and her started dating. Within months, Matt and Angel would be engaged and would ultimately tie the knot. Matt would end up adopting Hannah, who he nicknamed Swiftfoot, and raising her as his own. He nicknamed all of his kids. Um, They would add two more children to the family, Naomi, who he nicknamed Pocahontas, who was said to be daddy's girl, and Josiah Strongbow, his buddy, and little man. Now, by all indications, the Stewarts were an extremely happy and relaxed family, with both Matt and Angel having established careers of their own. Now, they both would work in the nursing field, with Matt working at the Lake Norman Regional Medical Center in Nooresville, while Angel worked in another hospital in Charlotte. Matt's co-workers would later recount that he didn't socialize much outside of work because he spent most of his free time with his family and he would not have had it any other way. He was highly regarded for his outgoing, upbeat personality, diligent work ethic, and lighthearted antics, which means he was a practical joker. And some of his co-workers said that he loved to pull the jokes, but he didn't like the jokes to be pulled on him, but he wasn't mean about it. They were lighthearted. Now, Matt was also a prominent member of the church in his community named River Life Fellowship. There, he would volunteer with the youth ministries. Now, Matt and Angel resided in the Gabriel Estate subdivision in northern Mooresville, which was a relatively normal blue-collar section of town. And their house, dang, I can't talk. Their house was located near a two-lane highway. And when I say near, it's not as close as you will read in some of the online things. It was described as basically their backyard butted up to another house's backyard. And then there was like a berm and a real thick, what we call down here in Georgia, bullshit and briars between them. And then past that house would have been the two-lane highway. So it's not as close as first reported, or you may think it is. Nothing about the location or the layout of the neighborhood or their home would indicate that they had anything to worry about. Residents of the neighborhood would later recall that they had an odd feeling in the early morning hours of June the 9th, 2009, stating that they felt an uneasy presence like someone was watching them, but no one was able to explain why exactly. It just felt like the night was off. Inside the Stewart house, everything was not okay. And while the exact timeline and series of events have never been publicized, we do have a rough estimate of what occurred that fateful June morning. 
Matt and Angel's oldest daughter, Hannah, who was 11 at the time, was at a friend's house for a sleepover. This was a neighborhood friend who lived just down the road, whom she had been friends with for some time. Josiah and Naomi were inside the home along with Matt and Angel. Now, according to Angel, earlier that evening, Matt had gotten out of bed and brought Josiah into their bedroom where all three of had fallen asleep. Now, just after midnight, a figure would emerge in the doorway of the master bedroom, and without warning, this figure began shooting at the stewards asleep in their bed. Now, Matt was reportedly hit by a bullet right away, but jumped up and began fighting with the unknown intruder. He would wrestle this unknown assailant into the nearby bathroom where a brutal fight would ensue. Angel, meanwhile, had been grazed in the wrist with a bullet and would end up fleeing the home with Josiah, who, remember, had been asleep in the bed with her and Matt when this all kicked off. So you got Angel and Josiah heading to a neighbor's house, and the neighbor's name is Matt, I'm sorry, Mike Lawson. Mike would later tell reporters with WBTV that Angel showed up at his doorstep holding her young son covered in blood. Quote, she rang the doorbell and then she came to the door and she looked at me and said she'd been shot. End quote. Angel would call 911 and the call would be received by local dispatchers at 1245 a.m. This is verified by the official call log, which showed that officers were dispatched within seconds and arrived at the scene within four minutes at 1249 p.m. That's pretty good response time, especially in the middle of the night or early morning, however you want to say it. When the two officers arrived on scene, the Stewart home was eerily silent with there being no sign of any activity since Angel had come running out with her young son, Josiah. There was no sign of the intruder, no sign of Matt, nor of Naomi, the couple's middle child. As far as authorities and Angel are concerned, Naomi is still inside the home. Now, her presence inside of the home seemed to change everything in those first couple of minutes when authorities arrive on scene. Over the next 20 or so minutes, more officers began arriving on the scene and it became apparent that the situation, situation, the situation, situation inside the Stewart home had not changed. There had been no signs of anyone being inside the home. Authorities began to fear that they had a potential hostage situation on their hands. So they call out the special response team. And for whatever reason, police would choose not to enter the home for some time. And by some time, I mean for over an hour and, no, almost two hours. So just after 2.30 a.m., officers make entry into the Stewart's home, and they would discover Matt's body in the upstairs bathroom. He was covered in blood with a substantial amount of blood around him. Now, less than a minute after finding Matt, officers would radio that a child had been found inside of the home and was unharmed. It's amazing. Yes, it is. They find this child in. Not only was she unharmed, Naomi had slept through the whole ordeal. I've heard of sleeping heavy, but wow. And it was reported that no one heard gunshots that early morning. Not the neighbor to the left, nor the neighbor to the right. Now, a lot has been 
placed on neighbors not hearing the gunshots, but it's not really, depending on how the house was built, these are close range gunshots that we are about to get into. It's not unheard of for neighbors in houses to not hear a disturbance going on. Now, if you were in an apartment complex, of course, hell, everybody could have heard it. But these are actual homes, insulated, separated by air and things like that. So now one neighbor was questioned by authorities and it was discovered that this person was actually awake at the time of the attack with an open window and still didn't hear anything. That's crazy. It is. And the craziness. So, like, believe it or not, if you believe the, what you hear in the movies, you know, silencers are completely silent. But that's just not true. Even if this perpetrator had a silencer, suppressor, whatever, you're still going to hear the gunshots. Right. And what you hear is that primer being fired off because it close. Basically, what you, when you hear a gunshot, you're hearing the bullet break the sound barrier. So as long as that gunshot is inside that, tra- that distance that sound travels, all you'll hear is a pop. And so that pop is like a cap gun. Like I said, you know, and, and there has been a lot of things online that state that there is no evidence, but people are assuming that suppressors or silencers were used. Again, they don't. I mean, just Google it. It's worth the goog. It is worth the goog. Get right. on the goog and goog it. Google it. <laughs> and you'll see. Get on the YouTubes. So let me explain something to everyone. I'm going to give you fair warning. What we are about to discuss is very graphic. This is the actual autopsy report that was on the website that I referenced earlier. I am not going to read you everything on there. I'm going to give you their official narrative, and then I'm going to try to put it in layman's terms or vice versa, whichever one comes first. I think we'll go layman's first. So the Iredell County Medical Examiner, one Charles A. Tudor, would state in his report that Matt had been shot and stabbed multiple times. Kicker is he wasn't shot with one caliber weapon. He was shot with both a 40 caliber and a 38 caliber weapon. He had been shot in the left corner of his mouth and left cheek by 38 from a quote intermediate range, which means there was no stippling or gunpowder residue on the entrance wound. And I think I had seen something a long time ago that that would be a distance of greater than six feet where you would not get the gunpowder residue blown on the wound or the person. Oh, really? I think. Now, I could be totally wrong. And again, that's worth a Google. I just didn't do it. I didn't do it. Gunpowder residue experts that listen to this show. I have absolutely 100% faith in that. Yes. They'll call us out in a heartbeat. 100%. Actually, pushes up glasses. The gunshot (laughs) residue is possible to travel up to 12 human feet. Not (laughs) alien feet, but human feet. (laughs) Like, what the hell does that person mean by human feet? I mean, normal feet. <laughs> <laughs> now, the forty caliber weapon had been used to shoot Matt in the upper right chest area, his liver, and his diaphragm. And this was oh. a close-range barrage of shots. 
because there was gunpowder residue on the entrance wounds. The thirty-eight caliber caliber weapon was also used to shoot Matt in the back, the liver again, and the chest again. But it was from a greater distance. Again, these wounds did not have any gunpowder or stippling. So what what this is what this evidence is telling me is that a he was the target, and b somebody fucking hated his ass. Yes, there's a lot like, of rage in this. Because of the wife escaping, like, tells me that they were not concerned about her in the least. No, and the son was not harmed either. So the way it's portrayed is this guy just shows up in the doorway and just willy-nilly starts opening fire. But when you get into it, as we will discuss later, it is more targeted towards Matt. Absolutely. Now, the final kill shot came from the forty caliber weapon at the base of Matt's skull. The wound was a... Why like that? Because I'm... I told you I'm struggling. Base. At the base. The base of Matt's skull, and this one was at close range with both gunpowder residue and stippling present, suggesting the gun was placed against his skin in fire. Matt also incurred... 12 stab wounds to his head and neck, along with the defensive wounds on his hands. From the medical examination report, it appears that the killer or killers also kicked and stomped Matt's head. Goodness. I mean, that's... Yeah, this ain't random nope. to me. Nope. You're not going to convince me this is random. This was 100% targeted attack. Yes. So the following is what the medical examiner would put in his report quote the autopsy findings include multiple gunshot wounds and sharp force injuries a medium caliber exiting gunshot wound involved the face the entrance was located at the left corner of the mouth projectile created a graze wound of the left medial cheek and exited the left lateral cheek no projectile fragments were recovered a large caliber exiting gunshot wound involved the right posterolateral neck below the skull base this wound had surrounding soot and stippling. The projectile perforated and fractured the first and second cervical vertebrae, transected the brainstem and spinal cord, as well as the vertebral arteries. Two yellow metal fragments of jacket were recovered from this wound. The chest had a large caliber non-exiting gunshot wound. The entrance was located on the right upper anterior chest and had surrounding stippling. The projectile perforated and fractured the right fifth rib before perforating the riddle riddle right middle lobe liver and right 11th rib recovered <laughs> recovered from That's the adjacent soft yeah this is horrible recovered from the adjacent soft tissue was a lead core and jacket which means it did not have time to separate that's how close that shot was the back on the no, within the liver, there were five jacketed fragments along the wound track. The back on the right side had two medium caliber non-exiting gunshot wounds. One was located on the right anterolateral chest wall in the anterior axillary line. The projectile went through the musculature of the back, penetrated and fractured the upper border of the scapula, and recovered was a minimally distorted, semi-jacketed, nine millimeter projectile that had a concave lead core below the leading edge. 
Also along the wound path in the musculature was a dense white plastic sphere weighing 2.8 grains and having a diameter of 7 millimeters. The other medium caliber non-exiting gunshot wound involving the back was located on the right upper lateral back, medial to the armpit. This projectile went through soft tissue, perforated and fractured the spine of the right scapula and recovered in the soft tissue were fragments of lead jacket and also dense white plastic sphere. Said sphere measuring 8 by 7 millimeters and weighing 2.8 grains. An atypical gunshot involved the upper left arm. The atypical entrance was located on the upper inner aspect of the arm, and the atypical short exit was lateral and below this. If the left arm was raised and approximated to the lateral left cheek, this would correspond to a re-entrance and re-exit wound from the wound of the left cheek. Sharp force injuries, including incise and stab wounds, involve the right lower lateral neck, the right side of the neck, at the medial sternomastoid muscle, the right preauricular area behind the right ear, posterior scalp, neck, and back and left temple. The one in the left temple went down, penetrated, and fractured the squamosal bone on the left side of the skull and had an associated fracture of the left parietal bone. Stab wounds of the chest and back involved a stab wound of the right upper chest that penetrated the right costochondral cartilage of the fifth anterior rib and penetrated the right medial lobe. Other stab wounds involved the right upper shoulder left chest at the costochondral margin and above the right clavicle. Angulated stab wounds involve the upper back, lower neck, left upper back, right upper back, and right upper lateral back. The stab wounds penetrated skin and subcutaneous tissue, but other than the wound of the right upper chest did not violate the chest wall. The upper extremities had incised wounds of the right inner thumb, right index finger at the proximal interphalangeal joint, the dorsal right hand, as well as the left hand between the thumb and index finger. Sheesh. These inside wounds of the hands are characteristic of defensive type injuries. Blunt trauma was minimal and non-pattern abrasions of the right side of the head, right side of the neck, and small abrasion of the foot proximal to the left little toe. The deceased had not been consuming alcoholic beverages immediately prior to death. Dude, that's tough to read. See, yeah, it's not easy. I didn't, you know, we we do this week to week, and I don't know if it's just me getting older or what, but there's a lot of medical jargon in there, but at the end of the day, this man lost his life in a very violent manner, and it appears oh, yeah. from my layman's interpretation of said medical autopsy form that not only did they stomp him, they also stomped his foot hard enough that they broke his foot. So yes, this was a very targeted man. I have no doubt. Now authorities theorize that the use of two different caliber weapons. And if you had been paying attention, there's a third caliber in there because the guy says that was a nine millimeter bullet that he pulled from him. Well, that's the only thing that I could find about that. So there's either three or the medical examiner doesn't know what he's talking about when he is doing an autopsy. I'm going to lean the other way. Now, I know we'll get a shit ton of people that load their own firearms 
or ammunition. And I understand a 48 and a third, a 40 and a 38 and a nine millimeter. We're talking hundreds or thousands of an inch in difference, but you can't shoot either of those calibers out of the other two. No, it's not like a 357 that you can shoot 38s out of. That doesn't work. I don't know much about weaponry, but I know that's true. Thank you. Even I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Authorities, like I said, think that there's two perpetrators because there was two different caliber weapons. They would state that the second perpetrator came to the aid of the first one when Matt was fighting with the first one in the bathroom. Other than this theory, authorities have released no information confirming or denying to attackers. Other theories state that there was only one intruder, and during the fight, Matt was able to knock one of the weapons away, and the sole perpetrator had a backup gun. If that's true, that solidifies this was a hit. Yep. Now, investigators expanded their investigation by canvassing the entire neighborhood that Matt and Angel lived in. Another oddity, and this case is full of them, is that authorities did not find any signs of forced entry into the home. According to those close to the investigation and to Angel, it was said that the Stewarts already made sure the doors were locked before going to bed. However, it was discovered that the back door had been left unlocked. Now, online sleuthers, along with just about every other YouTuber I saw, theorized that the door was unlocked because that is how the perpetrator exited the home. Also, depending on what you read, Angel could have exited that way as well when she ran to the neighbor's yard or neighbor's house. Like I had stated previously, there is a highway behind the Stewart's home. While it's not impossible to get to that highway, it would be extremely difficult and you would have to transcend this berm, thick undergrowth. Then you would have to go through two side yards and then make your way to the highway. And from what I can gather, it's a rural two-lane highway. Again, not impossible, but just not probable. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, they got to get away somehow. Yeah, I'm thinking they just walked around the front and got in the car, but that's just my personal opinion. Now, a lot has been made of how Angel was not able to give a description of the perpetrator, but keep in mind, she was asleep when she was awoken by gunfire. Matt, during this whole thing, was able to spring into action, and his fight or flight was fight. And that's when he wrestled the perpetrator into the bathroom. And it took probably that long for Angel to comprehend what all was going on. She immediately grabs Josiah and they escape the home. Now, throughout the years, it's been stated that the perpetrator never said a word or even made a sound before he opened fire on the couple. As would be expected, Angel was unable to give any kind of description of the killer other than the perpetrator appeared to be a tall male. This wasn't really going to do anything to help investigators narrow their suspect pool down. Now, over the preceding weeks, Mooresville police officials would tell local residents to not be, quote, overly concerned, end quote, about the crime. They would state that they believed that no one else was in imminent danger. The rumor mill would start spinning with the theory that the killer was someone known to Matt and his family. 
This theory has never been followed up on to what I could find in my research. Hmm. Now, unbeknownst to investigators working Matt's case, there was a string of homicides that had taken place near Mooresville after the night Matt was murdered. During the last week of June 2009 in Gaffney, South Carolina, which is located 70 miles southwest of Mooresville, a murderous spree claiming the lives of five victims would occur. The first murder occurred on June 27th. This victim was a prominent peach farmer named Klein Cash, who was shot and killed in his living room. His wife would discover his body later that day. The second and third murder would occur just four days later on July 1st. 83-year-old Hazel Linder and her 50-year-old daughter, Gina Linder Parker, were found inside Hazel's home, having been bound and then shot. The fourth murder would occur just one day later on July 2nd. 48-year-old Stephen Tyler, not Aerosmith, was shot and killed inside his furniture store. His body was discovered by his 15-year-old daughter, Abby, who came in to check on her dad. By doing so, this would lead to Abby being shot and injured by the same person that murdered her dad. And unfortunately, Abby would succumb to her wounds, passing away in the hospital just a couple of days later. All five of those murders had some odd similarities. One, the victims were all shot and killed with a 25 caliber handgun. Some of the deceased had been robbed of cash and valuables. Not everyone was robbed and not everything of value was taken from their homes. This would lead you to believe that burglary was not the killer's primary modus operandi. Because of this, no rational motive could be determined in the killings. Local authorities would chalk it up to random acts of violence from one individual. And that's not random if you go on a fucking five-person killing spree in a week. But anyway... Well, I, I guess random would be the victimology. They didn't say that, but that just came to me in my stupor here. Now, understandably, five murders in the small town of Gaffney, South Carolina, would make the national and local news. Authorities would launch a manhunt for the killer, and several witnesses would come forward with information about an unknown subject in the area of the crime scenes. Who had been seen driving an older model Ford Explorer? the person driving would match the sketch police had released to the media earlier in the investigation. Now, obviously, this older Ford Explorer did not have over 150,000 miles because if it had, speaking from experience and hmm. one owning one, the transmission would shit the bed and be leaking everywhere. <laughs> Just saying. I have a little bit of inside knowledge on that. Now, on July 6, 2009, a little week, little week, a little over a week after the murders had started, a burglary in progress was reported in Dallas, North Carolina. Dallas is approximately halfway between Mooresville and Gaffney. Witnesses in a quiet neighborhood noticed a, guess what, suspicious Ford Explorer, probably leaking tranny fluid. And it was the same Ford Explorer matching the description from the witnesses in Gaffney. The vehicle had been parked outside of an abandoned house. Three people were going back and forth between the vehicle and the vacant home. So, police were dispatched to see what these three individuals were happening or were doing that evening. Two of the three individuals were 
related, being brother and sister Mark and Sharon Stamey, who were known to the local police department as transients. The Stamies often squatted in abandoned homes like the one in question. They had been seen in the neighborhood before and were known to avoid trouble for the most part. What got authorities' little spotty senses tingling was the other person the Stamies were with. He was described as a, quote, large mountain of a man, end quote, who stood nearly seven feet tall and weighed at least 250 pounds. This old boy's going to stand out in the crowd. Hard to miss this guy. Yeah, definitely. Now, this giant of a man not only matched the description of the subject seen in Gaffney, but it soon became clear that this was a man that was trying to avoid police suspicion because when they questioned him, he gave them a fake name. They quickly discovered the man's real identity being that of one Patrick Tracy Burris, a recently paroled inmate who had just happened to violate the terms of his probation and had an outstanding warrant for his arrest. Okay. When officers attempted to apprehend Mr. Burris that evening, he would pull a pistol on them, shooting one officer in the leg, and it was a non-life-threatening injury. While the other officer that it was not shot would return fire and kill Mr. Burris stone cold dead right there on the scene before anybody could get to him. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Win stupid prizes. That's right. If you shoot a cop, there's a good chance you're going to get shot. I would say that this old boy pulled the old suicide by cop knowing damn well that when he pulled that smoke wagon, there was no turning back. Now, almost as soon as Patrick Tracy Burris was identified by police, they would surmise that he was the unidentified killer from Gaffney. While Mr. Burris checks all the boxes for a serial killer, he was more of a spree killer due to the short window of time in which the crimes were committed. Yeah, but you think that he would have kept going. He would have eventually been a serial killer. In the information that surrounds Matt's case, they don't really go into a lot of detail about his mental state, but what they do go into detail about is the fact that he had quite the rap sheet, and it dated all the way back to his teenage years. He had committed crimes such as larceny, forgery, breaking and entering, blackmail, and extortion for over more than two decades, sir. The categories. Twice. Uh, well, shut up. <laughs> now, these offenses would stretch across multiple states in the southeast, including Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, both the Carolinas, and the great state of Florida. He had been serving an eight-year sentence for several of his prior transgressions and was released from a North Carolina prison as recently as April of 2009. In the months after his release, he had fallen off the grid, failing to check in with his probation officer, thus the warrant being issued for his arrest. Through ballistics testing on the twenty-five caliber pistol that Mr. Burris had used to shoot the police officer on the night of his death, it was determined the same weapon had been used in all of the Gaffney murders. 
Investigators theorized that these killings had been committed so that Mr. Burris could use the money and valuables he took from the homes to procure some methamphetamines for which he had a liking for. Now, investigators were unable to locate where and what Mr. Burris had been doing leading up to the Gaffney murder. And when I say they were unable to locate him, I mean he was off the grid for almost a month. They have no idea where he was at. At the time of Matt Stewart's murder, Mr. Burris had reportedly been in the Mooresville area. It was confirmed that he had been in the greater Charlotte area that summer and had traveled through Mooresville on several occasions. He also had a prior history of breaking and entering, and if you subscribe to Mr. Burris being the man that killed Matt, he had gone off the reservation in the weeks after Matt's murder. Authorities would state that Matt's murder was the match that lit the fire in Mr. Burris's murder spree in Gaffney. Now, with Mr. Burris standing six foot eight inches tall and having a stocky build, he would match the description of the shooter given by Matt's wife, Angel. But she only stated that he was a tall male, not that he took up the entire frame of the door. Well, it may just be an exaggeration. I mean, you think somebody's really taking up the whole frame? If he's six foot eight and weighs 250, I bet he, they ain't much like getting past that man. <laughs> the door is at least seven foot tall. Okay, he's got four inches clearance on the top. Now, 250. <laughs> Not little. He's a thick, big-ass man is what he is. But anyway, I digress. Now, ballistics provided a clear link between Mr. Burris and the Gaffney murders. However, that was not the case with Matt's murder. Remember, there's either three weapons, if you subscribe to the coroner, knowing what the hell he's talking about when he says that he recovered a 9mm projectile from the body, but there's also 38 and 40 caliber wounds. And there's the knife, so that's four. Yes. Now, despite this glaring discrepancy, newspapers would report that Mr. Burris had sold at least two separate firearms to some acquaintances of his in the weeks before his death. But just like the shooter on the grassy knoll, I could not find any verification of this occurring. It was just said in passing, and no one was quoted as having said such information. Nothing that I found in my research even hinted that he sold a 38 and a 40 between the time Matt was killed and the time he started his killing spree in Gaffney. Now, police would eventually state and pull a 180 degree turn that their investigation was not connected to Patrick Tracy Burris and the murder of Matt Stewart. Now, remember, when this all kicked off, he was looking real good, and they were thinking maybe they had their perpetrator, but they say, uh -uh." Now, the reasoning of his murders occurring over the course of a week contradicts their previous statements on how they had no idea where Mr. Burris was during Matt's murder. Quote, there's no indication that Mr. Burris' spree started one month prior, dozens of miles away, and we have found no physical or circumstantial evidence linking him to the murder of Matt Stewart, end quote. Now, rumors would begin to swirl that Mr. Burris was, in fact, Matt's killer, but police simply did not have enough evidence to make the connection. 
Police have cited that Matt's murder investigation is ongoing and they do not have any more comments on whether the investigation is moving forward. Now, in August of 2009, authorities would reveal that the reward for information leading to an arrest in Matt's case would be doubled. I think it's up to, I think, $11,000 is what I'd seen. And it was at this time that authorities are stating the reward is doubled that a suspect sketch was released. I'm sorry, it was not at the same time. The suspect's sketch was released in January of 2010, roughly six months after Matt's murder. With the release of the sketch, authorities were disclosing information about the killer for the first time. This killer was described as a tall, large-framed man who weighed approximately 250 pounds with pretty average facial features. In the sketch, the man is bald with a large forehead, narrow eyes that are set pretty wide apart, a flat, large nose, and with stubble covering his rather square jaw. Now, you may be asking yourself, Self, how did they get a police sketch if Angel didn't see the perpetrator and Mr. Burris is not the suspect? Well, you're not alone asking that question. True. Police would not release any information about how they had come upon this necessary information needed to have a sketch, but it was widely believed that Matt's wife, Angel, had been able to give this description of the potential offender months after the shooting. Mm. Now, here's the deal. I couldn't find whether Angel was put under hypnosis or she just began to remember details that were not previously clear. Six months after the murder is a little suspect, in my opinion. We all know that witness recollections are often imperfect at the time of a crime being committed. This is only amplified when you take in consideration six months had passed before police released this composite sketch. I am not placing shade or blame on Angel at all. I understand that she is suffering and was suffering from PTSD at the time of the murder. In 2010, then Mooresville Police Chief Carl Robbins must have felt that the sketch was not very reliable because shortly after the sketch was released, Chief Robbins described it as, quote, just one piece of the puzzle, end quote, and stressed that the sketch was just an artist rendering of the suspect. As quoted in the Mooresville Tribune, quote, it is detailed, but at the same time, it's not to be confused with a photograph. So there might be some things that aren't exactly to scale and that kind of thing, end quote. For years, the working theory attributed to this case was that Matt Stewart was the victim of a home invasion gone wrong or even a burglary that went south when the culprit decided to open fire at Matt and Angel in their bed. A lot of people have dismissed this theory for a plethora of reasons. I myself do not subscribe to such theory. <laughs> I, don't either, I don't either, honestly. No, this is not a home invasion gone wrong. This is not a burglary gone wrong. This man was targeted. Now, for one, there was no sign of, like I stated previously, forced entry into the home. The only thing we know for a fact is the back door was unlocked either due to Angel leaving the house that way or the perpetrator leaving the house that way. Unless authorities are keeping it a secret, there was no sign of how the perpetrator gained entry. 
And to add to this, there was no sign of anything being stolen. Again, authorities have not stated whether anything of value was reported missing after the murder. There were also no reports of break-ins in the neighborhood before or after the murder. That bit of information leads me to believe that this was not just a burglar that got lucky by finding a backdoor unlocked. Absolutely not. Now, burglary gone wrong is hotly debated as well when it comes to theories. Most burglars break in when they know there's no one there because they don't want any trouble. They're trying to steal your shit, not kill you. Yeah, like most burglaries happen during the day. Correct. If you take into consideration that this perpetrator broke into a home with two adults and two children inside and then just opened fire on the adults prior to stealing anything, you run out of brain cells pretty quickly. Yeah, and I don't know, man. Something's nagging at me, and I don't want to be like this. And I'm certainly not saying this is what happened, but it kind of seems like, you know, the guy knew where Matt was sleeping. Yes, knew what side of the bed he might be on. Yeah, exactly. Now, how would he know that? Yeah. Kinda, he wasn't kinda odd. told. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but it's this whole thing sounds like a crime of passion to me. Yes. I can't get that out of my head. And again, I'm not accusing anybody of anything because I don't do that. I learned my lesson a long time ago. <laughs> that email still resonates. <laughs> but it just seems like this person hated him. That's an understatement. To do what he did, to take the time to do what he did is a clear sign of hatred to me. Ah. This ain't a robbery gone wrong when you shoot the person so many different times with two different guns or three different guns, if you depending on what you believe, and then stab them multiple times. If you're doing a robbery and it goes wrong like that, you get the hell out of there. Yeah, you're fr- you're just firing off rounds and running to get the hell out of there. You're not, that is a level of rage that is unheard of, to be honest with you. Now, the official narrative is that the perpetrator snuck into the house, made it upstairs without making a sound or being seen, and then got into a fight to the death with Matt without leaving behind one shred of evidence. Not to mention not leaving any clues as to how he entered the house. Now, could there be some DNA that the police have not stated? Yes, that is. And I can guarantee that unless the person was wearing some thick-ass gloves, that many stab wounds and the way that he was stabbed would lead you to believe from past cases that the perpetrator would have nicked themselves because that's a lot of blood. Oh, yeah. Now, as with any murder, the spouse is looked at from the beginning. While we are not making accusations or throwing shade at Angel, we do have to point out some of the glaring and confusing aspects of this case. According to the official narrative, Matt and Angel were asleep in the bed when a tall gunman began shooting at them from the doorway of their bedroom. In between Matt and Angel was their son, who Angel grabbed and fled out of the house while Matt wrestled the killer into a nearby bathroom. 
In the opening volley of shots, Angel was shot at least once in her arm. Some reports would claim that she had been shot in her hand. Tomato, tomato. She got shot once. That's all you need to know. Exactly. Now, Angel and she would release, this is the another oddity in this case, Angel would only release one public interview about that fateful night. And it was released as part of a music video for a Christian musical act called Big Daddy Weave. What? Yes, sir. Okay, I was like, I was sitting here thinking, I was like, it's not that strange that she would only do one interview and just be like, well, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I got one thing. I got what I have to say, and this is what I'm going to say. But yeah, that took a hard right, hard left, rather. <laughs> yes, sir, it did. I was like, I just had to get up when I found that out today. Go hard left. I was looking right and we turned left. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> In her interview, she would state that the wound she incurred merely required stitches and did not seem to be very serious. If the wound was just a graze that required stitches, then you have to take a look at Matt and Angel's neighbor, Mike Lawson, not as a suspect. But remember, he is the person who Angel runs to to get authorities. Mike is on record stating that both Angel and Josiah, her son, were covered in blood. Now, I understand that a wound requiring stitches is going to bleed a lot. As you scoop... It's weird. I mean, covered. Maybe they were there longer than she's claimed. Correct. As you scoop up a child, you're not thinking of the wound, but I can assure you that once the adrenaline starts to dump, Mike probably says something, you're going to have blood down that arm and that side of the body and maybe along where your hand had been holding your son. That's a huge difference from both being said to be covered in blood. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm starting to get iffy vibes, and I don't want them. Yeah, I've had them most of typing these notes out. I know that that little nugget that I just gave y'all is very nitpicky, but Details matter in a case this old and this cold because there is absolutely nothing being released by authorities and the details of what exactly happened that night are few and far between. Now, another area that does not sit well with the public is that Angel flees the house with her son in her arms running right past her daughter's bedroom where the daughter is found sound asleep two hours later. Several keyboard jockeys on Reddit have questioned Angel's maternal instincts. But that's not really something one should judge a person on due to the whole fight or flight reflex. And everyone responds differently to trauma. What ires the public is that during the two plus hours before police make entry into the home, Angel does not inform them that her daughter is still in the house. It is also worth pointing out that the neighbor Angel flees to Mr. Mike Lawson is on record stating that Angel never mentioned to him that the daughter was in the house. 
I mean, I, we've never been in a situation like that where we were so scared and so, you know, but whew, you would think you would make a big assumption that you would remember your daughter. Having to run past her bedroom as you exit the house. Yeah, I don't know. That's strange. Yes, very, 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 very. Aren't you glad I picked this case? You are. I am. You know, 12 pages of notes later, I am so thrilled. <laughs> I don't even know where I found this case. I, it was definitely it was definitely YouTube. It might have been a ranker. It may have been. They've been getting. You've been sending some good ones from there here lately. Yeah, they're the only one I'll forgive for starting at one because it's a ranking system. It's not a countdown. They are clear cut about that. Yes. Now another point of contention is that Angel's mother Brenda told police and people connected to the case that on the night of the murder, about an hour or two prior to the attack, she woke up to a sense of misery and grief. Some people state that she had a bad dream. Other people state that she woke up with a bad feeling. Again, tomato, tomato. Regardless of how and why she woke up, Brenda was in such a panic that she would divulge that she drove to Matt and Angel's home in the middle of the night. What huh. the actual fuck is going on? That, that don't make no sense. Depending on how this is delivered, she either drives to their house within an hour or two at the most of Matt being murdered. Again, this is a lot of craziness going on. Is this just a narcissistic way of interjecting oneself into the story or is this a mother trying to shield her daughter from blame i don't know the answer to that but i'll put that out there well maybe it's true though maybe she just felt something that she just needed to go you said she woke up in a panic right yes but her here's the thing it comes out later in the investigation that angel doesn't contact her mother her mother just shows up at the crime scene somehow that's what I'm saying is like maybe the mom just felt something inside her mother's intuition, telepathy, whatever. She just knew something was wrong. Yes. But according to the mother, she first travels an hour or two hours before he's killed. That doesn't disc discount what I've already just said. <laughs> It doesn't. She goes to Dunkin' and gets her a hot coffee and decides to go home and then gets another theory, I mean, feeling, and then turns around and finds the... I'm just saying. Okay. I'm just saying. I'm saying being the co-host of a mystery fucking podcast, I'm not going to discredit that feeling. We've covered fucking dick monsters on here. Okay? We've covered ghosts. We've covered... You know, oh, no, 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 I'm not. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that she didn't have a sense of dread and I'm not throwing her under the bus. I just find it odd that you would travel that way and not contact. Hey, because my I know my mama and good you Southern. I don't give a shit. My mama would wake me up in a heart. But hey, look, y'all OK? Because I just had this awful dream. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> my mama would have to. So with that. Ladies and gentlemen, 
there is some fuckery afoot. No, though. Not just with the mother-in-law or Angel's mom. There is a lot of fuckery afoot with all of these strange oddities in this case. Now, adding to this list of oddities is that, according to some friends and family, Matt was looking to obtain a firearm in the months before his death. Some of Matt's friends have stated that Matt was indeed looking to buy a gun for own protection, specifically in the week before his murder. One specific friend stated that Matt asked him to come along so that he could help him pick out the best gun for home defense. Newsflash, that is a shotgun with birdshot. No one knows, or if they do... Well, explain why, sir. They are not speaking in public. Why is birdshot the right one? Because it's not going to penetrate the uh, drywall and you get casualties. There you go. You don't get friendly fire. Don't accidentally shoot, yes. There you go, good. You, know, you butt shot, you killed the perpetrator and six people in the next room. Yeah, you blew, you blew a hole in your refrigerator and your neighbor's door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, no one knows if or if they do know they are not speaking it publicly if Matt was looking for a gun due to a threat or a perceived threat. Now, since Matt had battled with drugs earlier in his life, people have been really quick to use drugs as the reason of the murder, which... I understand we're going to go that way, but, and there was also rumors that were quickly put to bed, but that he was a part of some illegal prescription drug distribution ring. Now I understand back in 2009, it was probably easier for nurses to procure certain prescribed drugs, but from everything that I read about Matt's life, he had kicked that habit a long time ago and his coworker stated that that nothing ever came missing. He was never in a situation where he would be looked at for missing prescription drugs. So that's how those came about and then quickly were dismissed. Now, because Matt's murder remains unsolved, it is understandable that a lot of people in the online sleuthing community would look into his previous substance abuse issues. While it is possible that his death might have been connected to his previous issues, I feel like that it is highly unlikely. Now, in 2018, a podcast named Unforgotten was released, and this was by a man named Freddie Wilson. And it is one of the very few places that has in-depth information on Matt's murder. The podcast has two seasons and includes some bonus question and answer episodes. The Unforgotten podcast is the only new life this case has seen since 2011. Now, there was an episode on the podcast Unresolved, and the host of that podcast has stated that he has talked to Freddie from Unforgotten and Together, they are working to get information on Matt's case out there. Now, in a couple of the Unforgotten episodes, it had been insinuated that certain family members know of a primary suspect who was previously known to them, who police supposedly ruled out in the wake of the murder. However, during Freddie's investigation for the podcast, he was told by relatives of Matt that the killer was still out there, potentially even following along with the podcast. This would not be the first time that this has happened, nor will it be the last. 
These family members would ultimately ask Freddie to take down his podcast, which they alleged was putting them all in danger. At one point, someone even threatened legal action against Freddie for the podcast, reiterating the claim that disclosing certain information was putting them all in danger, but would not relay any specific threats. Keep in mind, all of the information on the Unforgotten podcast is publicly available information. Freddie would contact authorities asking for some help and was told by authorities that these family members, quote, had been through a lot, end quote. Basically, they didn't want him poking around either. Now, this would lead one to believe that some of these family members that claim their lives are in danger know something, but are either A, afraid of the person making the threats, or B, scared that law enforcement could not protect them without evidence to back up these alleged threats. And newsflash to anyone out there, unless you are Joe Rogan or True Crime Garage, most podcasters are not making any money off of doing these shows. Nope. What they are doing is trying to bring light to a cold case and closure to a family that has lost a loved one. Matt's killer is still walking around and needs to be brought to justice. Sullying the good name of a serial podcaster is not going to magically get the perpetrator to turn themselves in. Nope. The Mooresville Police Department is in charge of the investigation into the murder of Matt Stewart. Just like most police departments, Mooresville Police Department in recent years has been plagued with rumors of workplace misconduct and corruption, which reached ahead in 2019. Just so happened to be the 10-year anniversary of Matt's murder, and that kind of put his case on the back burner. The Mooresville Police Department's chief was forced to resign after being put on administrative leave. They also would fire a police captain and demote two senior command staffers. There were just some shady shit going on. And that is just a portion of the punishments doled out after a lengthy internal investigation looking into the claims of both sexual discrimination and racial discrimination in the workplace over a prolonged period of time. Like I hinted at, due to this kerfuffle, the 10-year anniversary of Matt Stewart's murder came and went, and there was no kind of announcement or anything from local law enforcement. There has not been any comment from anyone in law enforcement for almost 14 years, I think. Maybe not doing my math correct, but let's just say more than 20. Yeah, way too damn long. Whether or not the Mooresville Police Department wants to admit it or not, Matt Stewart's murder case is a cold one at this point. If it were not for the Unforgotten podcast, most of the information that I shared with you tonight would not have been available. Freddie Wilson is still gathering information, and if you have any details that you think would be great importance to this case, please reach out to him and the Mooresville Police Department. You can email Freddie at unforgottenpod at gmail.com, and you can contact the Mooresville Police Department at 704-664-3311, or if you want to be anonymous, you can call the local Crime Stoppers at 704-658-9056. Now, the Big Daddy Weave music video that I referenced earlier is under the title, Jesus, I Believe, Angel's Story. That's just strange. I'm sorry. That's just weird. Yes. Yes, sir, it is. I don't have a specific theory 
except for the fact that this man was targeted. Like you pointed out, they knew exactly which side of the bed to open fire on. There's a lot of strange shit going on surrounding the wife. And again, we're not making accusations. It's kind of like dealing with grief when she ran past the daughter's bedroom. No one knows what they're going to do until that situation arises. I, for one, am not going to say that she did something, you know, most people wouldn't have. But that added to a lot of the other things that have gone on with her just doesn't sit real well with me. Coach, do you have a theory or do you, it, I mean, this is, it's borderline lover scorned. I, I mean, I do have a theory, but I don't want to say it because I don't want hate email and I have no evidence to prove it. So that's what I, I was trying to hint at with lover scorned. There was a local case here many moons ago that, um, was a lover scorn situation, and uh, it finally came to light. You talking about the Pepsi? We wanted the PepsiCo. Uh, this was the Frito Lay. I think that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It's the one where I taught the daughter and didn't realize it. Yeah. Until I saw her on fucking Dateline. Yeah, yeah. That, we both taught the oldest daughter. Yeah. But in that situation, it was quickly found out that those two were. Um, not on the up and up when it came to their alibis. While this has the hallmarks of a lover scorn, lots of rage being doled out on Matt, you would think after such a long time period that a lover scorned would have slipped up. So while I do agree with you, this that is the way this ship is sailing. We are not alleging any wrongdoing we are just saying that there is a lot of shit that is unanswered in this case yeah that's why it's a mystery all these unanswered questions yeah that's why we do this yeah but anyway so um you have any recommendations good soil i'm going to recommend that if you have a pet especially a dog you give that son of a gun as much love as you possibly can. Because when we lost one of the pod dogs this week, he was a great dog with a horrible name. Todd the dog was the greatest. He would fart and snore when we first started. Oh, yeah. If you listen to the early episodes, you can hear him. Yeah, cats mourning him too. Well, my recommendation, while I do agree with you, is going to be Still Missing Morgan, which is on Hulu. It's four episodes, and it is around centered around Morgan Nick's life. And, I mean, you can binge it in one day. That investigation is not as dead in the water as it appears. So that kind of breathes a little bit new life and sheds some light on some things that are going on in that case. So if that is a case that intrigues you or if you've never heard of it research it and then watch still missing morgan on the hulu well coach do you have anything else there uh you know i don't then uh deuces